Sinclair Ferguson, a theologian, put it this way, when we think of Christ dying on the cross, we are shown the lengths to which God's love goes in order to win us back to himself. We would almost think that God loved us more than he loved his son. We cannot measure his love by another standard. He is saying to us, I love you this much. Subtitle to the talk this morning is Jesus Paid It All. This, uh, this phrase has been floating around in my head lately, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. There's a hymn that goes along right with that. The cross, the cross. What Jesus did on the cross, it's really what's most important. We can simply take a poll this morning, ask each of you what's most important, what's the first thing that comes to your mind when asked what is most important in your life, and we would get a variety of different answers. And that question was submitted to the Apostle Paul, and he answered it in 1 Corinthians 15. Verse 1, he said, Let me now remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then, and you stand, still stand firm in it. It is this good news that saves you if you continue to believe the message I told you. Unless, of course, you believe something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what has also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. Verse 4 continues, he was buried, he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scripture said. So when somebody asked Paul, hey, Paul, what's most important? He didn't have to wait, he didn't have to think about it. He said, let me tell you what's most important. Jesus died, he was buried, and he was raised on the third day, just like the Bible says. What's that mean? That means that you can trust the Bible because Jesus did die and he was buried and he rose on the third day. And, and he's coming back. He's coming back to this planet to take followers of Christ back to be with him in heaven. We're looking forward to that great day. Most important. So what's most important in your life? If it's not this gospel message, then you need to pause And ask yourself, man, maybe I need to make some changes. Maybe I need to decide. Um, Maybe I need to put my faith in Christ once and for all. 1 Corinthians 2, 2, Paul, again, echoes this same message. For I decided that while I was with you, I would forget everything except Jesus Christ, the one who was crucified. Hmm. Kind of goes along with that song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus and the Things of This World Will Grow Strangely Dim. I would hope that the longer you live on this planet, the more you realize those things that you thought were important, those things that you liked and they're disappearing before your very eyes. The gospel is not changing. 
The stuff from this earth, man, it's temporary. The things of salvation, the good news, the gospel, eternal life, that's forever and ever. Man, man, you can always count on Jesus. And I hope this morning you do that very thing. If you're searching for truth, if you're searching for God, let me tell you something. There's some, there's some not so cool things going on in our culture today, and I want to bring it to your attention. Because what Paul is writing about here, he says, um, you believe something that was never true in the first place. What Paul was saying was there's, there's truth being taught and there's deception being taught. And I can tell you right here, right now, in September 2019, there's deception being taught in, in your world, in your culture, in my culture. That's why you have to be alert to what you're allowing yourself to listen to, to hear, and to apply to your life. This past week, um, there's an article talking about Union Theological Seminary. It's in northern Manhattan, New York. Students at that seminary prayed to a display of plants set up in their chapel. This is past week. They brought plants in. Basically, your garden. They brought your garden into the chapel and they prayed to, to those plants. Today in chapel, we confessed to the plants. The nation's oldest independent seminary declared. Together, we held our grief, joy, regret, hope, guilt, and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we often too fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Huh? How's that going for you? We had many questions about chapel. In worship, our community confessed the harm we've done to plants, speaking directly in repentance. This is a beautiful ritual. Far too often we see the natural world only as resources to be extracted for our use, not divinely created in their own right, worthy of honor, thanks, and care. We need to unlearn habits of sin and death, and part of that work must be building new bridges to the natural world. And that means creating new spiritual and intellectual frameworks by which we understand and relate to the plants and animals with whom we share the planet. We're treating plants as fully created beings. Divine creation in its own right, not just something to be consumed. Because plants aren't capable of verbal response, does that mean we shouldn't engage with them? In this statement... Union Seminary is declaring Wicca, white witchcraft, to be their honored religion. In a seminary where future men and women are being trained for full-time ministry. Now, for those of you that may not be familiar with black witchcraft and white witchcraft, black witchcraft is the dark side of demonic activity. White witchcraft is becoming very popular in our culture today, and that's where people worship plants, creation, Mother Earth. They worship. They confess their sins to. 
Black witchcraft, white witchcraft, Wicca may look a little more appealing, but it's just as evil. And if you know somebody, if you've been flirting with that, you know, going out and talking to your rose bush in the morning, you need to pause and ask yourself, hey, what's going on? Have I believed a lie? Because I'll tell you this, friend, you go out and confess to your plants, that's not going to do anything for you spiritually. Your soul is condemned to hell forever and ever. Your plant has not rescued you from the dominion of darkness, and it will not. So this this kind of teaching has crept into our seminaries today. And so um, Union Theological Seminary is grounded in the Christian tradition. And at the same time, deeply committed to the interreligious engagement. And they go on talking about how they have Muslims, they have, they have um, all di- uh, Anglican, Buddhist, all kinds of the Quakers, they all come in. They want to give their students a variety of ways to worship, along with plant worship. That's pluralism. Christianity is exclusive from the standpoint that Jesus is the only way that you can get to heaven by having a relationship with him, by allowing him to forgive you of your sin. There is no other way. And in our culture today, everybody wants to be accepted. And so they, this subtle message that we all need to get along, we, listen, Jesus died for the world. The world. Whatever your background, he's saying, You are welcome to put your faith in me. But there's only one way to heaven. It's exclusive. And it's fair because anybody, everybody is welcome to put their faith in Christ. So, some of you may have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a German pastor, an anti-Nazi dissident. He was one of the school's more famous alumni. Well, he escaped the Third Reich in the 1930s. He came back to Union Seminary, this school, and taught for a short period of time in 1939. Bonhoeffer, whose parents trained him to think critically in a culture where everybody was bowing down to Hitler, Hitler became God in Germany, but the Bonhoeffer family had learned to look for truth Recognize the deception. So Dietrich comes to Union Seminary, and this is what he says. I was appalled by the liberalism of the student body. They are completely clueless with respect to what dogmatics is really about. They are not familiar with even the most basic questions. They become intoxicated with liberal and humanistic phrases, are amused at the fundamentalist, and yet basically are not even up to their level. Now Bonhoeffer goes on to say that he remembers distinctly when he was lecturing about sin and the forgiveness of Jesus Christ that the student body laughed at him. Saying they have forgot what Christian theology is all about. And he was very disillusioned for his time that he was teaching at Union Seminary 
and he packed it up and he went back to Germany. He was arrested by the Gestapo and he was killed in a POW camp, concentration camp in 1945, just before the end of the war. Ladies and gentlemen, what we're talking about this morning is most important. You do not have the luxury to procrastinate, to rationalize the choices and decisions that you're making with the way you live your life. Because we talked about this a few weeks ago, but there, there is um, an assignment to take you out personally when it comes to your spiritual life. And I want to ask you, what are you going to do about it? Well, Paul says what's most important and to, to jump off the ledge this morning, number one in your notes, my sin. The student body at Union Seminary back in 1939 blew off the whole concept of sin and forgiveness, the need for a Savior. For you and I to settle it, we need to recognize that I'm a sinner. And in Isaiah 59, verse 2, it says, It's your sins that have cut you off from God. It's your sins that have cut you off from God. Romans 3.10, no one is righteous, not even one. What does that mean? Can you understand that verse? It's pretty clear, isn't it? No one. No one. Romans 3.23, for everyone has sinned. What's the word everyone mean? Everyone. We all fall short of God's God's glorious standard. We all fall short. So, we tend to to rate sin. Americans are very good at that. We think, man, if I'm a good person, you know, I'm not a I'm not a murderer. And so when God comes to me, when I stand before God one day because I've been good, and we all have a different definition of what good looks like, right? Because we're comparing ourselves to the people around us. If we took Adolf Hitler and we stood him here, and we took a seven-year-old boy or girl and stood them next to Hitler, who is deserving more of heaven? In the eyes of God, they are both guilty. They are guilty. And I'll tell you why. Because all it takes is one sin in your life or my life that is enough to keep me out of heaven. I can't be good enough to get into heaven. You know? Going to church, being nice to people, um, letting people walk, you know, cutting line in, in, in the line at Walmart, you know. Oh, another brownie point, you know, when I get to heaven. No, God's not impressed by that stuff. We think Adolf Hitler, man, ooh, you know, that's, I'm better than him, so I'll get in. No, no, no. A seven-year-old child is just as guilty in the eyes of God. And that's why children, they understand, they understand the gospel. 
the, the simple message that I'm a sinner, my sin will keep me out of a relationship with God. It will prevent me from going to heaven one day. Therefore, I need a Savior. Jesus paid it all. He went to the cross. And when I place my faith in him, he forgives me. My sin is forgiven. My name written in the book of life. I am guaranteed entrance into heaven. I don't have to wonder, cross my fingers to be good enough. Because you'll never be good enough. That's why we need Jesus. Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. You see that message keeps being repeated through, through the Gospels and through the New Testament. We can't get away from it. You see, the religious community in Jesus' day, the Pharisees, they, they patted themselves on the back. They gave each other high fives because they knew the law, and they put their nose down on Jesus because Jesus was all about a relationship with his father. They were into rules and regulations. No. They, those religious were not getting into heaven and Jesus was making that very clear. You see, hopelessly separated from God, Subpoint number one, that's, that's what we are. For the wages of sin is death, the reward for sin. If you choose to reject Christ, the reward for living that lifestyle is death, eternal separation from God. Ephesians 2.1, once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins, you used to live in sin just like the rest of the world, obeying the devil, the commander of the powers in the unseen world, He is the spirit at work in your hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Colossians 1.21, this includes you who were once far away from God. You were his enemy separated from him by your evil thoughts and actions. So Paul is making it very clear. My sin, I need to own it. You know, stop rationalizing, stop comparing yourself to somebody else that's worse than you and think you can sneak into heaven. It's not going to happen. My sin, I had to settle it one day as a teenager. Because I had been running from God and I had been pushing God away and I wanted to live my life the way I wanted to. Until it hit me, my sin, my sin, I am a sinner. The reward for living this life is eternal separation from God. I, I'm a sinner, I need a savior. See? That's, that's what we need to do. Hopefully, hopelessly separated from God, plus we're spiritually dead. Romans 5.12, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world, and Adam's sin brought death. So death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. And we could go on and on, you know, being hostile towards God, blinded and enslaved by Satan, powerless to overcome sin. We, we could go on and on. Why you and I need a Savior? It's bleak, you know, when you think about it. Pretty bleak out there. 
But guess what? The good news is good news. God didn't leave you and I hopelessly separated from him. He did something about it. He took the initiative. He had a plan. And that was his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the hope of the world. Which leads us to number two. Jesus at Gethsemane, Mark 14, 32 through 34. So Jesus came was raised by his parents, became a carpenter, and at the age of 30, went into public ministry, choosing a group of men and women to hang with him, to follow him. As he gave hope to the world. Jesus at Gethsemane. They went to the olive grove called Gethsemane, and Jesus said, sit here while I go and pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he became deeply troubled and distressed. You want to underline those words, deeply troubled and distressed. Now, look at verse 34. He told them, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. You see a lot of emotion with Jesus here. The weight... of what was about to happen to him was was crushing him. And so let's take a look at, this is Gethsemane. If you were going to to Israel, the Garden of Gethsemane, you would would come out of the old city Jerusalem into the Kidron Valley. You would go down and then you would walk up again and you would hit the Garden of Gethsemane. This is an olive grove. And many of these trees are over a thousand years old. And that's where Jesus went. In fact, when you go through the Gospels, you'll find that he went there often to pray, to spend time with his Father. He loved spending time with his Father. And then you see this particular, you know, that's part of the Garden of Gethsemane, another angle of it. If you were to walk through the Garden of Gethsemane, so you're going down the Kidron Valley to the Garden of Gethsemane, behind the Garden of Gethsemane is the base of the Mount of Olives, and that's where Jesus ascended to be with his Father. Forty days after he rose from the grave. In Zechariah it says he's coming back, he's planting his feet on the Mount of Olives in the future. So by today, by you participating in communion, you are announcing the Lord's death until he comes. He's coming! And so, look at the emotion. Oh, man. Mark Mark 14, um, my soul is crushed with grief to the point of death. The message puts it this way. He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. Man, does that nail it? He plunged into a sinkhole of dreadful agony. What was going on? In Matthew 4, Jesus had been tempted by Satan, and he did not give in to sin, but he used the word of God, spoke it back to Satan, and it says that Satan left him for an opportune time. Let me tell you something. This is an opportune time where Satan 
is doing everything he can to thwart Jesus going to the cross for you and for me. This, this battle that's raging in the Garden of Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane is a beautiful place, but let me tell you something. There was some real spiritual warfare going on. Jesus, Mark 14, 35, he just, it's, as he's there, this, this weight becomes heavier and heavier. He went on a little farther and fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible, the awful hour awaiting him might pass by. Listen to what he says, verse 36, Abba, Father, he cried out, everything is possible for you. Please take this cup of suffering away from me. Yet, I want your will to be done, not mine. And we can see that it goes on and on. Luke twenty two forty four. he prayed more fervently, and he was in such agony of spirit that his sweat fell to the ground like great drops of blood. That word agony, in such agony, it means severe mental struggles and emotion. Have you ever experienced that kind of torture? The mental. Battle raging. Jesus was getting hit full bore by it. And he's crying out to his father, Father, is there any way, is there any way that we could do this a different way? His father was silent. But he kept coming back to this. He was settling it in the garden. This battle's raging, Father. I want to abort the mission, but when it's all said and done, not my will, but your will be done in my life. That's, that's what I want. That's why I came to earth. Not my will, but your will be done. And so in the garden, Jesus drew a line in the sand and he settled it with his Father. I'll do it. I'll do it. I realize what I'm going to be facing, but I'm going to do it because he sees the big picture. Hebrews 5, 7, and 9, while Jesus was here on earth, he offered prayers and pleadings with a loud cry and tears to the one who could rescue him from death. And God heard his prayers because of his deep reverence for God. And even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience from the things he suffered. And in this way, God qualified him as a perfect high priest. And he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. That's what it was all about. Jesus obeyed his father because he saw you and me in the future needing a savior. And he wanted you and I to have that relationship with his father. Pretty cool. Number three, Jesus said Golgotha. Mark 15 22, and they brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. Let's take a look at this. So if you were to, again, come out of the old city in Jerusalem, and so let's just say the, the Garden of Gethsemane is over this way out of the old city, Golgotha's on this side. You come out of the old city. And the place of the skull, if you look straight here, you can maybe use your imagination that it looks like a skull. Well, a hundred years ago, um, it was more distinct, that face, the place of the skull. Erosion has taken its, uh, its course 
on the side of that rock. But that's where they brought Jesus. Jesus at Golgotha. They offered him wine drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. Then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. They divided his clothes and threw dice to decide who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And a sign announced the charge against him. It read, the king of the Jews. Two revolutionaries were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. Ha! Look at you now, they yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Well then, save yourself and come down from the cross. And leading priests and teachers of the religious law also mocked Jesus. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down from the cross so we can see it and believe it. Even the men who crucified were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. Jesus was going through personal torment, and then when he's on the cross, he's got all of these people walking by, mocking and laughing at him. Come on, Jesus, get off the cross. Take the easy way. Jesus could have, but he chose not to. He could have come off, but he stayed. John Stott, Christian author, put it this way, before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, we have to see it as something done by us. It was my sin that put Jesus on that cross, you see. My sin. Which leads us to number four, my choice. We have a choice. We have a decision to make. In life, in Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals hanging beside him scoffs, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it by saving yourself and us too while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, don't you fear God even when you have been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes, but this man hasn't done anything wrong. He's innocent. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus replied, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. There's evangelism going on while Jesus is hanging on the cross. Two criminals, one criminal puts his faith in Christ, realizes Jesus is who he said he was. And then when Jesus breathed his last, when the Roman officer overseeing the execution saw what happened, he worshiped God and said, surely this man was innocent. A Roman soldier put his faith in Christ. Powerful things were taking place. There were battles raging for the souls of men and women. And it continues to rage today. You and I have a choice. Just like that one criminal next to Jesus, he had a choice. And his decision was, I'm putting my faith in Christ. And Jesus had the authority because he is who he said he was. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Not maybe, hopeful, hope so, cross my fingers, hope to die. No, none of that. You will be. And you talk about the confidence we can have for eternity. I like to rest in what Jesus did. 
Jesus settled it. He settled it so that we will never have to worry about being separated from the love of God when we put our faith in him. There's a cathedral in London, St. Paul's Cathedral. There's a life-size marble statue of Jesus. It shows him writhing in pain on the cross, and there's an inscription on the statue that reads, this is how God loved the world. Isn't it true? It is. God showed his great love for you and I by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Wow. Wow. We have a decision to make. And so back in 1936 in Hamburg, there was a ship launch ceremony taking place. And you can see everybody's got their hand out up honoring Hitler. Except the one dude. You see the one dude there? There he is. He doesn't have his hands up, does he? He does not have a hand up. It was later found out that his name was August Landmesser. (laughs) Could you do that? Hmm? Everybody around you is, and you're this? Hmm? He had a choice. He had a decision. We don't know what happened to August. If his life was taken from him. But you and I are living in a world where everybody's going like this, not to Jesus. And when you put your faith in Christ, you're a minority. And that's okay. That's all right. But you have to make a decision. And you have to make a choice. Because what happened on the cross, Jesus became the sacrifice for my sins. Jesus became my substitute 2 Corinthians 5.21, For God made Christ, who never sinned, to be an offering for our sin so that we could be made right with God through Christ. Yeah. Jesus is my Savior because he took my place and he rescued me from the power of darkness. So, we have a choice to make. 1 John 1, 7, the blood of Jesus cleanses, it purifies us from all sin. Not some of our sin, but all of our sin. That's the great news. Hebrews 9, 22, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. That's why Jesus had to go to the cross. There had to be a blood sacrifice. And it cost him his blood. There's a missionary, Jim Dennison, serving in East Malaysia. He was in church one Sunday, and he saw a teenage girl come forward to announce her decision to follow Christ, and they were having a baptismal service at the end of the the service. And so during the baptismal service, Dennison noticed this worn-out suitcase sitting up against the wall, 
And he asked one of the leaders, hey, what's that all about? And he said, her father said if she was baptized as a Christian, she could never go home again. So she brought her luggage. You see, she made a a choice, a decision. It was costly. But she was willing to pay the price for it. Which leads us to number five, I believe. John 1.12, but to all who believed him, like this teenage girl, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They were adopted into God's family. It means to put your complete confidence in Christ and what he has done for us. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross was the sacrifice, paid in full. John Bunyan, who became a follower of Christ and went to prison because of his faith, wrote this, I was made to see again and again that God and my soul were friends by his blood. Yes, I saw that justice of God and my sinful soul could embrace and kiss each other through his blood. This was a good day for me. I hope I shall never forget it. (laughs) How's that with you? Jesus did rescue us. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says, For he has rescued us from the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. Aren't you glad for that? I was part of the kingdom of darkness, but Jesus rescued you and me when we put our faith in Christ and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son. I believe. How about you? I believe. I believe. 